elementary class, you are dismissed. For those of you who are staying in uh, with us, you can go ahead and open up your Bibles to Acts chapter 8. We're going to cover the first 25 verses of Acts 8 in our time together uh, this morning. So we've been walking through Acts for a while now. We're going to continue to be in Acts for most of the rest of the year. Um, And so we're excited as we continue to work through it uh, this morning. So we'll be in Acts chapter 8 verses 1 through 25. James Brownson writes, the early Christian movement that produced and canonized the New Testament was a movement with specifically missionary character. One of the most obvious phenomena of early Christianity is the way in which the movement crossed cultural boundaries and planted itself in new places. More than half of the New Testament was in fact written by people engaged in and celebrating this sort of missionary enterprise in the early church. What was true in the early church remains true for us today. Namely, that the call of the Christian is a call to mission. Healthy churches that are comprised of healthy Christians are characterized not by a wait-and-see approach, but a go-and-tell initiative of engagement. My prayer for us as we unpack Acts 8, 1 through 25 this morning is that the Spirit would move in each of us, both individually and collectively to remind us that we are those who have been empowered by the Spirit and entrusted by Jesus to share the gospel across the cultural and social divides that seem to be insurmountable to us today by mere human effort. But as we get into Acts 8, 1 through 25, we remember Stephen's sermon in chapter 7, and it's Stephen's sermon that prepared the church for this moment as the ESV study Bible notes with his message of a God not bound to one people or place Stephen had laid the foundation for a worldwide mission let's pray God we are grateful this morning that you're a God not bound by time or place you work in time and in places to accomplish your purposes but you're not a God bound by either of those things and we're grateful for that because if you were there's a chance we may not know you If you were bound by time and space and geopolitical boundaries, there's a chance we may have never encountered your saving grace. But as it is, you're the one true God, the only living God. You created all things. All things serve your bidding. And you're accomplishing your purposes in the world today in the same way you've been accomplishing them from eternity past to now and into eternity future. And so we pause this this morning with grateful hearts that you're a God of mission, that you're a God of pursuing the lost, that you're a God of making a way for us to be restored through the giving of your one and only Son. We pause today with grateful hearts that not only do you restore us to yourself, but you restore us to a new community, a new family. And that family often is not made up of people who look like us, think like us, talk like us, share the same cultural customs that we do we're part of a global family all making much of jesus together and for that we give thanks it's in christ's name that we pray amen acts 8 1 through 4 luke writes for us and saul approved of his execution this is really the tagline to the end of acts 7 the entire chapter that saul approved of the execution of stephen and there arose on that day a great persecution against the church in jerusalem And they were all scattered throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria, except the apostles. Devout men buried Stephen and made great lamentation over him. But Saul was ravaging the church 
and entering house after house, he dragged off men and women and committed them to prison. Verse 4, now, though, now those who were scattered went about preaching the word. Saul, who's not yet Paul, is an up-and-coming leader in the synagogue in Jerusalem. And not only does he approve of the execution of Stephen by allowing himself to be the one who watches over the belongings of those who are stoning Stephen, but it appears that in the moment as he watched this unfold, as he watched these men who were members of the synagogue of the freedmen stand for what they believed the truth was and execute Stephen, it appears that Paul or Saul at this point was emboldened by the actions of the crowd. And he begins his own personal mission to punish persecute and render the church powerless his zeal for the destruction of the church was horrific and evil full stop now we can't fully comprehend what it means for paul to have ravaged the church like this because we don't live in a state where you can just be waiting outside of your home one morning for a friend to come greet you and the police can haul you off or arrest you and take you to prison and upend your life with really no reason or no explanation but this is the reality they face, what Paul was doing. And it's key that Luke tells us. Luke's a masterful historian. There's a reason he says that it's men and women. Historically, if you wanted to render someone weak, you take the men. You leave the women to fend for the family, to fend for the children, to figure out their way in a world dominated by men. That would weaken someone. But if you want to make a movement or someone completely inept, Take their men and their women. This is what it means for Paul to have done that. Hauling away both men and women to prison, Paul knew, left nobody at home to care for the children, the elderly, the family business, the livestock, the crops. Everything that would have fallen under the purview of the woman or the women in the house in that moment now falls to either the elderly or the young. And I don't know if you've been around people who are advanced in age, into their 80s or 90s. You don't necessarily want them having to go out and hand mow the barley or the wheat. You don't want a three-year-old with a mowing scythe in their hand wandering around trying to collect your crop or trying to figure out how it is that you would kill your livestock for food to eat. This is not how we would perceive of it because everything there was kind of a day-by-day basis. You had to know how to kill an animal. You had to know how to prepare it. You had to know when to go get the crops and when to leave the crops alone. All of this stuff went into it. And so what Paul does, or what Saul does in taking the men and the women away is he moves to make the entire church movement stop in its tracks. Because if there was anyone able-bodied left in the home, they would oftentimes become so concerned with the health and welfare of the imprisoned that it was sometimes to the detriment of other concerns and needs, not least of which would be their own health. When they were hauled into prison, they were not hauled into a state-sanctioned prison like we think about today. Oftentimes in prisons in the first century, if you're going to be clothed, if you're going to be fed, if you're going to be cared for, it was not the prison that provided those things to you it was an incumbent on the family to get them to you and if you live on one side of town and you've got to travel to the other and people know in your passing and going that you're going to visit someone in prison it doesn't take long for other people to gather we could probably go take some stuff from their house and they can't stop us 
We're going to understand the scope of what it means for Saul to be doing what he's doing. He puts the early church on very thin ice, he would assume. And you've got to imagine that as the extreme pressure began to settle in on the early church, that it would have perhaps been a cause for Paul's for most to once again consider the cost of following Jesus. Jesus wasn't just giving us a funny or cute catchphrase of consider the cost or count the cost. When he told his disciples and his followers in his earthly ministry that the wise sit down and consider if they have what it takes to go to war. The wise sit down and consider, do I have enough to undertake the building of this tower? He says, it is also wise to consider, do you have what it takes to follow me? The courage, the resolve to believe I am who I say that I am. The gospel is what I've said it is and that nothing can stop it. Because this is what's waiting for some of you. However, all was not lost. In fact, if we read all of Acts chapter 8 and then we just keep reading through the rest of the New Testament, we begin to see that in the face of persecution, there was actually good being done in and for the church. What is the good that is being worked out here? If this is the situation the early church finds himself in, then it seems rather crass or unloving to say that there was good being done. It feels like putting a Band-Aid on a bullet hole to say, well, yeah, God's going to do good things. This is not in any way to minimize the very real evil of persecution in the moment. But what it does highlight is this, is that even in the most evil works of men, God is working for his good and for his glory. The evil actions of men have never once thwarted or interrupted or otherwise stopped God from accomplishing what he was going to accomplish. Because the most evil and heinous act of men was the crucifixion of his son. And it accomplished exactly what he set out for it to accomplish. That's why we call it Good Friday, ahead of celebrating Easter Sunday. Because even in the midst of the worst that the human mind could imagine, God was at work. And so there's good happening because Luke tells us this persecution led to a scattering of the followers of Jesus, except for the apostles, who probably felt a call and a reason to stay in Jerusalem, that they were there to care for the church that had started in the city. That it was best for them, it was more than likely agreed on as the persecution intensified, it was probably agreed on that the best thing for the apostles to do would be to stay there for the moment to continue to nurture and care for the young church. But everyone else, and more than likely this persecution that started with Saul, zeroed in on the Hellenistic Jews as it was their synagogue that Stephen proclaimed Christ in and was martyred outside of. So it's more than likely that the persecution broke out against these Hellenistic Jews who were then being forced right back out into exile. But this was not an exile of punishment, it was an exile of grace. Because they were going, not bearing the weight of their sin on their shoulders, but they were going, bearing the joy of the good news of the gospel to share with others. Regardless of however we arrive there, what is clear is this. Everyone once jam-packed in Jerusalem is now in Judea and 
Samaria. Thus we see the words of Christ from Acts 1-8 being fulfilled. But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. What Christ said would happen in Acts 1-8 is now beginning to happen as we enter into Acts chapter 8. The scattering in the midst of persecution is accomplishing God's purposes of seeing the gospel go to the ends of the earth. What I want us to consider in these first four verses this morning before we make our way through the rest of the text is this. I want us to consider that these four verses in Acts 8 confront us with a very sobering thought to wrestle with. And it's this. We cannot always allow ourselves to say that we will only find the good purposes of God after we are through and on the other side of our suffering. We cannot always give ourselves a pass to say, God's not doing anything good here. Sometimes we must consider who God would have us share the gospel with in the midst of our suffering, not just on the other side of it even when it feels unnatural, even when it feels counterintuitive, even when it seems as if the wiser course would be prudent silence, we would do well to ask, to whom and where can I preach the word? If we only ever wait until we are through our suffering before telling the gospel and the goodness of God to others, we may miss moments to participate in the good work of God in the world. Paul himself writes in Ephesians 5, 15 and 16, Look carefully then how you walk, that is, live, not as unwise but as wise, making the best use of the time because the days are evil. Notice how Paul puts that phrase together. Paul says, walk wise, and then he says, because, making the best use of the time, because the days are evil. Paul puts time in the bracket of understanding that all the days are evil. That if we're rightly understanding the world as it operates today, we don't have very many good days. Paul doesn't say make the best use of the good time. Paul doesn't say make the best use of your best life. Paul doesn't say make the best use of the time as you see fit. Paul ties everything together so that as we're walking wisely, we will make the best use of the time because we know and understand that all the days are evil. And so there's never going to be the perfect opportunity. There's never going to be the just right moment. What there will often be are moments where courage and humility and compassion and mercy meet in us and drive out of us a proclamation of the gospel to those around us, oftentimes even in the midst of our suffering. This is how we make the best use of the time, all of the time. To borrow from Charles Dickens, it could be the best of times, it could be the worst of times. The call remains for us to share the gospel. And oftentimes that means sharing it right in the very midst of our suffering. And sometimes that means that we share it with ourselves first before we share it with other people. To remind ourselves in the midst of the suffering, God is still good. God still loves me. God is still for me. Jesus hasn't abandoned me. I'm empowered by the Spirit. I'm equipped to walk wisely, making the best use of the time. We remind ourselves of all these things. 
But oftentimes our suffering, while it may help remind us of these truths, is not meant to serve as a personal powwow of spiritual platitudes. It's meant to bring us to a point that we would so remember in the midst of the suffering that it would drive it out of us to those around us walking through our suffering with us. Think about how many times, even as we're walking through suffering, that the Lord in his grace puts unbelievers around us to help meet our needs. Now think for a minute about how many times you've walked through suffering with unbelievers around you and you've not thought in the moment of their need of salvation. It should work together. It should be a joint venture where we are served and loved sometimes by those who don't yet know Jesus, but we also then work to meet their spiritual need of salvation. Then we read the following, starting in verse 5. I'll read 5 through eight and then we'll stop there and then we'll pick it up near the end but acts chapter eight verse five philip went down to the city of samaria and proclaimed to them the christ and the crowds with one accord paid attention to what was being said by philip and when they heard him and saw the signs that he did for unclean spirits crying out with a loud voice came out of many who had them and many who were paralyzed or lame were healed so there was much joy in that city Philip, not the apostle, but one of the seven Hellenistic Jews picked to serve at the table, finds himself among those scattered with the onset of persecution. His flight leads him to Samaria, which is roughly 70 miles from Jerusalem. So Philip's looking at anywhere from a three to five day trip. As persecution intensifies, he grabs what he can carry, and he's looking at a three to five day trip. And in whatever way or whatever brought him there, Philip finds himself in Samaria. That walk through hilly, uneven terrain would have been exhausting for Philip, but have provided plenty of time also to wrestle with what was happening and how he would respond. And this informs us as we think about who we would share the gospel with. Philip had three to five days to wrestle with everything that was going on. To decide in this moment what he would do as a follower of Jesus with everything that he could understand that was before him. When we think about who we're going to share the gospel with, the first thing we need to do is we need to take a few moments to understand clearly what we're facing. To wrestle with what's going to be my response with what comes next. What is it that is going to settle my heart and my soul so that in whatever I come into contact with next, whoever I encounter next, I'll be ready to respond in a way that would honor God and love and serve them. Philip's response is to be available and obedient. He enters Samaria and he gets to the work that God has for him, namely sharing the good news of salvation in Christ to the Samaritans. And just like Jesus, the apostles, and Stephen, his message is confirmed by miraculous works of exorcisms and healings. And what is the response of the Samaritans? Luke tells us that much joy was in the city. Undoubtedly, there were more than likely other believers who traversed the hilly terrain from Jerusalem to Samaria and arrived there. I don't think it was just Philip in the city in that moment sharing the good news of the gospel of Jesus, but Philip is who Luke is connected to. Philip is the one that Luke is telling us about, but what is the mark of the city where those driven out of Jerusalem in persecution, where they arrive and start speaking and sharing the good news of the gospel, meeting not only the spiritual needs, but the physical needs through healings and exorcisms. What are they marked by? They are marked by joy. 
This begs the question of us. When we are somewhere we didn't imagine being because of forces and situations out of our control, is where we are, be it a new job, a new school, a new neighborhood, a new medical diagnosis, or whatever it is we're facing, is where we are and the people we are around marked by the joy that comes from hearing and experiencing the power of the gospel. The people in the places we find ourselves, when we're where we didn't anticipate we would ever end up, when we find ourselves in those places, which is the case for Philip, a Hellenistic Jew who had made his way back to Jerusalem to plant his feet again on the native soil of his people to live and die there. Now Philip is back out on the move again, dispersed once again. Never, I don't think, did he imagine when he arrived back in Jerusalem that he think he would find himself back out of there again. And yet here he is. And how many of us have those moments in life like Philip? We have arrived where we are sure this is where we will be, this is what we will do, this is what will define us and give us purpose and meaning and clarity and passion in life. And then we're not there very long before the Lord moves us again. What is it that marks where we end up? Is it the joy of salvation found in Jesus alone. I love what verse 4 says. Now those who were scattered went about preaching the word. Not complaining that they were scattered, although I'm sure that there were moments in the quietness of their tents or walking along the road that they had honest conversations like the Psalms instruct us to with God about what was going on. But when it came time confronted with those who didn't know Jesus, confronted with people who needed to know that there was a way to have their sins forgiven, and it was through Jesus the Christ. When confronted with those opportunities, Luke tells us they preached the word. They didn't say, woe is me. They didn't say, I didn't ask to be here so somebody else can share with these people. They simply shared the word. And that is the challenge for us this morning, to consider right now where you are, I don't know what your life looked like that you had mapped out five years ago or five months ago or five weeks ago. But where you are right now is where you are. And you're not there by accident. You're not with the roommates you have by accident. You're not going to HOA meetings with people by accident. You don't have coworkers by accident. You don't have classmates by accident. Nothing in your life is left to chance. God is putting you in positions where you get to respond, if you would like, by opening your mouth and sharing the good news of the gospel of Jesus. For only when sins are forgiven, only when new life in Christ is realized, only when the needs of people are being met by those who love and care about Jesus and his church and his bed, that's when true joy resides on a people and in a city. You're where you are now, not by accident, but by the purposes and plans of God so that you too, myself included, would go about preaching the word. We have this interaction starting in verse 9, Luke writes, but there was a man named Simon who had previously practiced magic in the city and amazed the people of Samaria, saying that he himself was somebody great. They, paid, they all paid attention to him from the least to the greatest, saying, this man is the power of God that is called great. And they paid attention to him because for a long time he had amazed them with his magic. 
But when they believed Philip as he preached good news about the kingdom of God and the name of Jesus Christ, they were baptized, both men and women. Even Simon himself believed, and after being baptized, he continued with Philip. And seeing signs and great miracles performed, he was amazed. Now when the apostles at Jerusalem heard that Samaria had received the word of God, they sent to them Peter and John, who came down, who came down and prayed for them that they might receive the Holy Spirit. Simon the magician is one of the most unique and interesting people we meet, not only in Acts, but in all of the scriptures. He's here for a brief moment, but the lessons his life has for us are vast and important to consider. From the outset, there appears to be a genuine interest in the gospel and in the person of Jesus on the part of Simon. This was a man who had enjoyed many years of profitability at the hands of those in Samaria. But as he's there, as he's hearing Philip and others share the good news of the gospel, as he's watching what's happening, he sees that a growing crowd of people that were daily experiencing the outworkings of the Holy Spirit in their life were leaving his charades and going to experience true power and true life that Philip had to offer. Not only that, but Simon more than likely found it that his cheap magic tricks akin to something you would pick up at a magic shop at Broadway at the beach, no longer held the sway and the power they once did. It's one thing if you can pull a quarter from behind a kid's ear. It's another thing if you're David Copperfield and you can make the Statue of Liberty disappear. This is what we're talking about in the scope of things. Therefore, it's not unreasonable to surmise that Simon's motives were more than likely mixed. Simon's motives were mixed in the same way that everyone's motives when they consider Jesus are mixed. You've never met anyone who you've shared the gospel with who's coming to Jesus without mixed motives. Because we all have an idea of who we want Jesus to be for us, and we're confronted with the truth of who Jesus is, and it creates in us a mixture of motives on what it means to follow him. Simon is not unlike anyone, ourselves included, who has ever considered what it means to follow Jesus. And so he considers, perhaps I have an interest in this message because I really am curious as to who Jesus is. And I do have a desire for eternal life. Perhaps that was part of Simon's thought process in the moment. But the other part of it, more than likely, was this. Simon wanted to stay connected to the people whom he had profited off of for so long. You don't know how old Simon is. We don't know anything about his social status or his bank account, but it would appear that more than likely at least two of the competing motives in Simon were a genuine interest in Jesus and a genuine desire to stay close to continue to make money off people he had profited off of before. I think that's a fair assessment, given what we're going to read of Simon shortly, of what motivated him. But his profession of faith is followed by baptism, and Simon begins to follow Philip the way the people of Samaria used to follow him. The news of not only Simon's conversion, but the work of the Holy Spirit in Samaria eventually make its way back to the disciples and apostles in Jerusalem. Intrigued and wanting to confirm the legitimacy of the report, the apostles send Peter and John to substantiate their claims. I want to pick back up with you at, in verse 16. Luke tells us that they had sent Peter and John who came down and prayed for them that they might receive the Holy Spirit, starting in 16, for he had not yet fallen on any of them, but they had only been baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. Then they, Peter and John, laid their hands on them and they received the Holy Spirit. 
Now when Simon saw that the Spirit was given through the laying on of the apostles' hands, he offered them money, saying, Give me this power also, so that anyone on whom I lay my hands may receive the Holy Spirit. The apostles send Peter and John to substantiate the claims that they've heard about what's going on in Samaria. And when the apostles arrive, they see and hear that the gospel has indeed been received in Samaria. And with that, they proceed to lay their hands on the believers and pray for them to receive the Holy Spirit, and they do. But why does it happen this way? We baptized four people last year, and at no point did the elders gather around and lay our hands on those we had baptized in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. We did not gather around and put our hands on them to pray for them to receive the Holy Spirit. But it happens here. Why is that? Why is it that these believers didn't automatically receive the Spirit as we see become the case as church history moves forward? First thing to remember, the book of Acts is by and large descriptive of what's happening, not prescriptive of what must happen throughout the remainder of the life of the church. And so Luke is describing something that happens, but it still begs the question, why this way if you've been around church for a while or you're aware with some of the bible stories that you've read here and there in the old and the new testament primarily the new testament and jesus's specific interaction with the samaritan woman and you've ever heard that talk you know that the jews and the samaritans did not get along they didn't like each other this exceeded alabama and auburn football fans not liking each other this exceeded Duke and Carolina basketball fans not liking each other. It exceeded Yankee and Red Sox fans not liking each other. It exceeds almost anything we have to draw a parallel to probably the most accurate synonym or way that we could begin to understand it would be the understanding of racism in our country. Just a complete dislike of the other. For nothing more than how and where they were born. That they were born mixed is how the Jews would view the Samaritans as a mixed breed. And the Samaritans viewed the Jews as unloving and unkind who had the word of God but did not match the grace of God. And so you even remember Jesus has this conversation with the Samaritan woman. And he begins to ask her her views on the Christ. And she says, well, there's going to come a time when God comes to our mountain and we go to that mountain and there's where we'll worship. So you guys stay over here in Jerusalem. You're good. But the Samaritan, we're about to get our own divine revelation and jesus says there's coming a moment where you won't even go to that mountain and they won't go to that mountain but those who worship god will worship in spirit and in truth and so now we're at the point where that is happening what we need to have here is the people of god worshiping together in spirit and in truth so it appears to be that it appears that the reason why there is a delay in the giving of the Spirit until Peter and John arrive to confirm everything is to preserve the unity of the church, especially given that background of the history between the Samaritans and the Jews. The SV Study Bible notes, The apostles in Jerusalem retained their authority over the entire church. The Lord sovereignly waited to give any manifestation of the full power of the Holy Spirit 
until some of the apostles themselves could be present. And therefore, there would be no question at all that the Samaritans had received the new covenant empowering of the Holy Spirit in the same way that the Jewish Christians had. This would show that the Samaritans should be counted full members of the one true church, the new Jerusalem. It would also guarantee that the Samaritans, who for many generations have been equally hostile toward the Jews, would not establish a separate Christian church or be excluded from the church by Jewish believers. The Spirit was given only at the hands of the apostles to show convincingly to Samaritan and other later non-Jewish leaders of the church that both Jews and non-Jews who believed in Jesus now had full membership status among God's people. This is why there is the delay. This is why even though being baptized in Jesus' name, they had not received the Spirit yet. Because God was working to preserve the unity of the church. Let me just offer this to you to consider this morning. God still cares deeply about the unity of his church. It's his bride with no S. There are not multiple brides in heaven for Jesus. There is one bride, one church, one faith, one baptism, one Lord, as the New Testament would tell us. Jesus still cares deeply about the unity of his church. I want to make two quick statements before we move on. One, it is inevitable that there are those who would posture themselves as a church, who do not function, operate, or otherwise conduct themselves in the way that a church would. They may claim church in their name. They may claim that they follow Jesus. There even may be a gospel presentation in their sermons or on their website. But there are those, especially in the U.S., where the barrier for starting a church is so low. There are those who start a church who have no desire to really be a church. And those are worthy of our questions, of our skepticism, and of our working to preserve the unity and the purity of the flock. On the other hand, there are people who do church a little bit differently than us, than us who are still in the family of God. Your job is to not be the cynical sally of every move that they make trying to discredit them in the work that God is doing through them, but to join them in praying that God will continue to do the work that only he can do so that the gospel will continue to go forward in our city. This ain't about what we do best. It's about what God's doing through his people. And the last thing God is pleased with are believers who make it their point of living in life to find fault with other churches. That's not to say other churches don't have issues. That's not to say other churches don't have sins that need to be confronted. Guess what? We got them. We're in it with them. So the goal for us is not to stand back and go, I can't believe God would work through them. He must not know what I know. Newsflash, he knows more than you know. Always has, always will. Even about them and the things that they think they're keeping hidden and the things that we think we're keeping hidden. What we have to be passionate about is the unity of the church because God still cares about it. We can maim it and we can fillet it through denominations and splinterings and all those things. I don't think God is pleased with any of that. What God is pleased with is the church unified around the gospel message to take that message to the ends of the earth. 
And so where people vary from the core convictions that make you a believer, they need to be and we need to be confronted in that. But where it is secondary and third level issues that we want to bicker and argue and fight over all the time with our fellow brothers and sisters, let it go. That's not what God has called you to, and you're wasting your time condemning your brothers and sisters rather than confessing Jesus to those that don't know him. This is what we've got to push towards. So having seen this take place, Simon the magician wants in on the action. He asked what amount of money he could pay so that through his hands, Others would receive the Spirit. And Peter said to him, starting verse 20, May your silver perish with you because you thought you could obtain the gift of God with money. You have neither part nor lot in this matter, for your heart is not right before God. Repent, therefore, of this wickedness of yours and pray to the Lord that, if possible, the intent of your heart may be forgiven you. For I see that you are in the gall of bitterness and in the bond of iniquity. And Simon answered him, Pray for me to the Lord that nothing of what you have said may come upon me. Now, when they had testified and spoken the word of the Lord, they returned to Jerusalem, preaching the gospel to many villages of the Samaritans. Simon wants in on the action. He's a man who's still primarily driven by profit and power over selfless service to others. And so he offers the apostles money for the right to give the spirit to those he prays for. This highlights that his desire is not the kingdom of God, but his own small kingdom that he can control with a power greater than any he has known before. Peter, as one would expect, given his track record for rebuking the Son of God, offers a summary statement of the nature of Simon's soul and the dangerous territory he walks. For whatever pomp and circumstance and fanfare may have accompanied his profession of faith in this city, the wonder that Simon the magician would be a believer and be baptized, the response of Peter puts all of that into its proper place because Peter leaves little doubt that Simon's faith isn't genuine. It's not about the pomp and the circumstance, the fanfare or the celebration of those who give their life to Jesus. And yes, we celebrate because it's good news that people have gone from death to life. But what we have to be clear about is that proximity to the family of God does not make you a family member. Simon was close. Simon went through the actions of being identified with the family. You can go through a lot of actions and your heart just stay right where it's at. And just like we talked about last week, what determines where and when God meets with his people is not where their feet stand, but where their heart rests. Simon's heart was not resting in the finished work of Jesus. Peter says, this is the free gift of salvation, man. You, we didn't buy it. You can't buy it. Not only that, but Simon's desire to purchase power that isn't theirs to give is proof that he is driven, Peter says, by the gall of bitterness and the bonds of iniquity. Bonds of iniquity means he's still stuck in his sin. But the outworking of that sin is the gall of bitterness. What Simon cannot handle is not being their equal. What Simon cannot handle is that all of a sudden he plays on the same playing field as everyone else. There needs to be a hierarchy. There needs to be a place where Simon can flex his natural charisma and gifts so that he can be who he needs to be. The gall of bitterness springs from his dissatisfaction with not being an apostle himself. How many times are we driven by the gall of bitterness because we don't rise to the position we think we deserve in serving in the church? 
And so he asked for the prayers of the apostles, and that's where the story ends. It ends open-ended. He just asked for prayer. The NIV, the NIV study Bible recounts the following concerning the life of Simon the magician after this point. It is widely believed in church history, they write, that Simon the magician, the healer, the exorcist, the wonder worker, according to later church tradition, became an arch heretic and founder of the Simonians, a Gnostic sect. His travels eventually took him to Rome where he opposed the church there. Every outward indication that he belonged to the family. And yet when confronted with how everything in the economy of God works, it was proven that his heart didn't really rest in Jesus. His body and his feet rested near the family of God, but his heart didn't rest in Jesus. And so this is what I want us to consider this morning. As we consider that we're empowered and equipped to take the gospel, consider this. The presence of Simon's inauthentic belief didn't minimize or nullify the work of God in the midst of the Samaritans. One person not being a genuine believer did not cause everyone else there to be questioned in the authenticity of their salvation. So it must be that we share our faith without allowing the fear of inauthentic belief to be a means of paralyzing us from sharing or causing us to doubt the effectiveness of the Spirit when people do come to faith. We often think we have to bat a thousand in evangelism if we're going to be used. But if God alone is the one who saves, if the Spirit alone is the one who convicts, if new life only comes through Jesus and Jesus alone, and eternal life is the prerogative of God, then we're all batting zero because it's only God is batting a thousand when it comes to salvation. He ain't missed yet. And he's not going to. But we don't know who those people are. We don't get to peek behind the curtain of their heart to see in that moment if it actually changes. This is why it's not only important that we share the gospel, but then we connect people to the community of faith so that we can watch and see and help guide that person and see where the gospel is going to confront the core convictions of who they are later down the road so that then we could go, oh, your heart is resting in Jesus, or perhaps you never trusted him in the first place. Because you can read Peter's words to Simon and go, that's harsh. Peter offers Simon the most loving thing he can. Rebuke and correction that would perhaps still save his soul. But we can't let the worry that someone may prove to be inauthentic in their belief stop us from sharing the gospel. When you do a wedding... If you're a minister and you do a wedding or if you're in here and you've been married, the goal of the minister is not to say, when you say I do, I can guarantee you that this thing lasts forever. As the minister who officiates and presides over the wedding, you do the best you can leading up to the wedding to help the bride and the groom understand what is coming for them in marriage in the general way that everyone can understand what life together in marriage looks like, but you don't know the specifics of what they'll face. You don't know the reality that awaits them on the other side of I do. But I know, and I have done and performed weddings for people who are now divorced. Let me tell you what that doesn't cause me to do. 
doesn't cause me to doubt the validity of everyone else I know who's married, that I married. And it doesn't cause me to doubt the beautiful institution of marriage as God ordained it. It's the same with the gospel. We, like the early church, are called to go with the message of Jesus to the ends of the earth. We are each equipped to be missionaries who make disciples as we go. Just like those who were scattered in persecution saw many come to faith through their faithful obedience. However, it is still a daunting and at times paralyzing task to consider being those who would share our faith. And to our doubts and questions, Steve Timmis and Tim Chester provide some helpful insight and encouragement in their book, Everyday Church. They write, We need to be patient and trust God's sovereignty. God is in control of mission. He is sovereign in salvation. Trust him to take the little morsel of the gospel message you give to people and use it as part of his purposes in their life. Our role is not only to share, but to live good and attractive lives under the lordship of Christ that provoke questions. Then they go on to give the second part of the equation that marks healthy evangelism, and it follows the pattern we see in in Acts. They, meaning those you shared the gospel with who have come to faith, ask, what is the next step? So after sharing the gospel with our words, it is exposure to the Christian community. Here, people will not only hear the gospel word, but see it being loved and lived. They will see the power of the gospel to unite desperate, disparate people and make them family. They will also see us failing and falling out, but then see grace in action. They will hear our message with a variety of voices and experiences. The different gifts God has given us work together to create a compelling testimony to the gospel. By exposure to the Christian community, we mean, of course, more than attending a weekly meeting. We mean being introduced to the network of relationships that make up the church. We mean sharing in the life of the community in the context of everyday life. Often people diminish our intellectual arguments, but they find it much harder to dismiss the compelling witness of the Christian community. This is what Acts 8 prepares us for, not only to share the good news of the gospel, but then to invite them in to Christian community alongside of us. We need Jesus as Savior. We need the empowerment of the Spirit. We need the counsel of the Scriptures. We need the community of faith, the family of God. We need to be sure that we are a church marked by living on mission for the gospel. Let's pray.